Oh, no. No, no, no. No. Good morning. Oh, yeah. All right. Um, so two, two things just to be reminded of. We did have a lot of announcements today. Uh, next week, Church 21 West Island will be joining us again. Um, just because it's been really encouraging, especially over the last two years of like, what's happening right now? Um, to realize that life is not just about our church, uh, small C, but that the church, capital C, across the city um, is, is getting busy. And Jesus is still building his church. And so we will probably get on some kind of a semi-regular rhythm where we'll be together. Um, just gathering together, kind of all West Island, kind of uh, together with Church 21. Uh, they're already kind of like extended family members and cousins. Uh, so it, it makes sense for us to be together. So yeah, we're looking forward to hosting them again next week and uh, gathering together. And then secondly, I know this is, it's so hard. The first and third Sunday of every month, um, now that we are back in person, uh, we have prayer downstairs uh, before service, okay? And I know most of you are just like, oh yes, prayer, that thing, right? Um, so we did have a great time this morning just praying together and reflecting. Um, so just uh, keep that on your calendars. Check our website. We actually have an events page on our website now. Revival will break out soon, I promise, because of that. Um, we have an events page on our website, which is actually accurate and showing us things that are coming up. So be sure to visit that, and we'll remind you of all sorts of stuff that are coming up. Good? Awesome. All right, so we're continuing in the Gospel of Mark. Last week we jumped back in. Uh, we're going to be taking larger chunks of Mark between now and Easter so that we can finish at Easter. And then we're actually going to be jumping into Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, after Easter. And spending some weeks there uh, unpacking the wisdom of Scripture for our lives. So we're really looking forward to that. Um, today is a spicy one. Amen. Yeah, we're excited. Yeah. All of our spicy food enthusiasts are like, I like spicy. I like this. Um, but this is why we like to go through books of the Bible verse by verse at Reach Montreal. Because you can't avoid doing this. Getting into texts that are like, well, that's uncomfortable. Um, or that's convicting. It's way too easy to kind of just cherry pick verses that are like, I like these a lot. Right? And it just kind of confirms my own biases and already tells me how awesome I am. I like those ones. But the ones that are challenging and convicting and actually cause us to, to be still and reflect a little bit before we walk out those double doors, um, those are tougher ones. And I'm just warning you as a bit of a disclaimer, that is today. But we want to lean into that. We want to lean into the convicting message of God's word today. So here's what we're going to see in Mark 12. Uh, Jesus is having another conversation with one of his opponents. Okay, so if you notice, since Jesus showed up in the temple, he's really messing things up. He's really messing up their whole religious system. He's really messing up their jobs, right? He's causing some trouble in the temple. And this is the continuation of that kind of same conversation that's happening. So verse 28 um, through 30, Jesus has a pretty positive conversation, actually, with a teacher of the law, with one of the scribes, okay? And it'll be up here, and it says this, verse 28. So one of the scribes approached Jesus. When he heard them debating, and he saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, so Jesus, which command is the most important of all? Good question. Really, really good question, right? Because Jesus is teaching all sorts of stuff. This guy's like, I've heard a lot, but I just want to know, what is the most important thing I need to understand about you, Jesus, and your teaching? And Jesus answers him, the most important is this. Listen, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And he tacks on a second one for a bonus. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. 
There is no other command greater than these. Okay, so the scribe shows up and asks a really good question. What is the most important commandment? Now, this is a really good question for us to ask, but it's also a really important question for them to have asked in that, con that context. The reason why is because the Jewish tradition had lighter and weightier laws. Okay, so the law of God is not just this uniform thing that is equally weighed. There are more important things in the word of God and lesser things. Not that they are not significant, but they are heavier or lighter. And that's how they spoke of them. And that's why this question comes up. There are 613 commandments in scripture. That's a lot. Okay, anybody doing, doing pretty well on all of those? Yeah, good, amen, you're amazing, right? But, but the weight of the law is something that we have to feel before we realize our own failure to be able to obey the law. And in that context, there was a conversation happening and debates happening in seminaries and with all the smart Bible people about which ones actually mattered most. And that's why this young scribe comes and asks what he does to Jesus. Because it's really important to understand his, his posture here. It is no good to stress the importance of God's law generally, but never apply any of it specifically. Amen? Are you with me on that? And there are lots of conversations today um, doing that. It's like, well, God's law, and it's just like, it, it's all just super important. And then I get to use it and quote it and rebuke people that I want by it, right? That is not actually how the word of God works. That's not even what makes the Bible unique when you put it up against other religious literature. It's not. There are more weightier and lighter matters of the law. And if you remember, this is the exact same thing Jesus rebukes in the Pharisees, right? In Matthew 23, there's this big thing where Jesus is not meek and mild. He is like bold and wild, Jesus. And he goes into this whole like, woe to you, shame on you. And one of the things he criticizes them for is for going and tithing mint and dill and cumin and doing what? Neglecting the weightier matters of the law, which are what, Jesus says? Justice, mercy, and faith. So he's talking to the Pharisees, he's talking to the scribes, who are going into their, their, their spice cabinet, and they're so holy and so righteous that they're like, I even give, I even like salt bay and do like 10% of my dill. Right? And they do it in front of everybody at the synagogue. Look how holy, dill for the Lord. Amen, right? And Jesus is like, that's, that's ridiculous. Like, like you're missing the entire point of the law. You're missing the entire heart of the law. You're missing the spirit of the law by trying to go and obey the law, right? So the paradox is real for the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus is very bold and strong in how he calls that out. And this is why it's important for us to hear this. Because unfortunately today, there are entire Christian circles, entire Christian tribes, Entire denominations built on waxing eloquent about God's law while never applying any of the weightier laws to fight for justice and mercy in our society. If you want to belong there, you can find them. There's books written about it. There's denominations that will welcome you. There's tribes and tents you can go and hide under and never be responsible for applying the word of God. They exist. They're very loud about it. But wrongs are not righted. The abused and, and the, the traumatized are not healed. The weightier matters of the law are not even considered. 
And Jesus has strong words for those of us where that's our tendency. Is out of our own self-righteousness or want to like look sanctimonious or obedient, never actually consider mercy, never actually consider justice in ways that matter most. And that's what Jesus is doing here. And I love his answer because he's Jesus. But it's what's a Jesus-y answer. Right? It's twofold. He says, here's what's most important. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's number one. Number two, love your neighbor as yourself. What does Jesus do here? He takes the entire law and he just like distills it and boils it down into properly ordered love. You see that? Love ordered correctly. Because what's our problem? Well, sin happens when we have disordered love. When our priorities are out of whack, that's when sin follows. So Jesus is actually taking the entire law and he's saying this is what properly ordered love looks like. Love directed first and foremost to God and then secondly to neighbor. That's properly ordered love. That's what obedience looks like. And then what, by doing this, Jesus is actually just bringing together two really important Old Testament texts. We won't do it in detail, but the first is Deuteronomy 6, and it's known as the Shema. And it was a daily prayer that the Jewish community would practice multiple times a day. And it was love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second is Leviticus 19, which is love your neighbor as yourself. What's really cool about Leviticus 19, you know that book in the Old Testament that you most, most of us skip, that one? In Leviticus 19, after love your neighbor, it's followed up with a whole bunch of practical ways to do that. Right? So it's not as if we have to go and make up ways to go and love neighbor now and figure it out on our own. Like Leviticus 19 says, love your neighbor. And then it goes on to say, so intentionally leave margin in your life to give to the poor. Okay, that's a pretty practical principle. So when I make my budget, I live with margin to give to others in need that are not able to meet their, their quota in life. It's like, oh, it's very practical. Have integrity in how you speak and handle money. Very practical. Have integrity in your relationships. Do what you say. Like mean what you say. And say what you mean. Pay your bills on time. That's in Leviticus. Just pay your bills on time. Everyone's like, but Videotron is the problem, not me, right? <laughs> Pay your bills on time. Care for the vulnerable and the marginalized. Don't show favoritism. It goes on and on and on. All of these practical ways to actually love neighbor. Jesus is pulling all of that forward for the, for the audience. He's pulling all of that forward for this teaching. So in other words, to wrap it all up, what is Jesus actually doing here with the law? He is saying... The law properly understood and properly applied means put as much energy, planning, and care into how you care for yourself as much as you do for others. Okay, so, so, so put as much energy, planning, and thought into caring for others' well-being the same way that you would think about your own well-being. So self-care, are you doing it for others? prioritizing and working on your budget and thinking about money, are you, are you even considering others? Some of the things that you have been entrusted with, are you even considering others, right? So that, that, that is just the principle boiled down. And that's where the as yourself comes in, right? And we talk about self-love and self-care a lot. But biblically, you prove that you actually do care for God first by understanding that he's gonna care for you and you get to go care for others, that, that's, that's biblically what's happening here. Why? What does that mean? Well, 
When you're hungry, what do you do? You eat. When, when you're tired, what do you do? You rest. When you're thirsty, you get a drink. When you're lonely, you make a phone call. We have to be on the other end of that. That's what this looks like. That's what the law of God properly applied looks like. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament in Galatians 5 does the exact same thing. He just highlights what Jesus is doing here. He says, all the law is fulfilled in one phrase. Love your neighbor as yourself. And there's lots we can unpack there. We won't. But I want to remind you of another conversation that Jesus has, which leads to the Good Samaritan teaching. Okay, most of us are familiar with the Good Samaritan teaching. But in another place in Luke, Jesus has a conversation with a Jewish lawyer. And the Jewish lawyer's response is different than this scribe. This scribe actually has a very positive response to what Jesus says here. He goes, that sounds great. Like, good answer, rabbi. But in another conversation with the lawyer, the lawyer asks, but who's my neighbor, though? Which is a cute way to be like, but if I can define who my neighbor isn't, I have no responsibility personally to care for them. And I think that this is the creep in our heart that we have to fight more than anything. Because in that text, he doesn't ask, oh, love my neighbor, how do I do that? That would be the right, right question to ask. Jesus, in what ways can I love my neighbor? What he does is he looks for a way out, and he plays semantics with Jesus so he can make up a category of people that he doesn't need to care about so that when he's living his life, he can say, but not them. He gets to otherize and come up with justifications why other people's well-being isn't his responsibility. Did you hear that? That's what he's doing. Now, we don't have him in this text. We have a better response, which is good. But so often we come up with reasons why our standard of living and our rhythms and what we do with what we've been entrusted with have nothing to do with other people's well-being. Well, it's personal responsibility. You got to make it on your own. That is not biblical. Like corporate responsibility, corporate repentance, corporate action in obedience to God's law is biblical. Do you have personal responsibility for your own sin? Of course you do. Absolutely. But first and foremost, when we look at this, we got to understand the creep of their heart here because it's so easy for us to come up with categories of people Otherize and justify why others' needs are not our responsibility. So my question that I have wrestled with, and trust me, when I say this is a spicy one, it's because I've had to sit in the spice all week, right? I've had to be convicted and repent all week before I get up here and yell at you, right? But the question that this begs of us is, do you have proximity and meaningful relationships with people who are not like you? Who don't live like you? who are in a different socioeconomic reality than you, who ethnically and culturally don't share the skin that you're in. Friendships with people who think and vote and act and live differently than you. Because if you do not, hear me, if you do not, and you live in an echo chamber, and you are justifying that and saying, well, see, I'm loving others. If everyone that you are loving is exactly like you, you are not loving others, you are loving yourself. And that's what this text is doing. It's like, oh, I love, I love my name. So no, you love you. That's what Jesus is calling out of us. That's why this is spicy. Because when we look at our, this command to go and love neighbor, it's so easy to justify and say that we're already doing a killer job at it. 
but actually miss the entire point and spirit of the law. It's crazy. So who, who is our neighbor? What does our neighbor actually look like? Well, in the Greek, it's someone who is near. That makes sense, right? Someone who is near. Which means what? Well, our neighbors are anyone that's next to you, where you live, and how you live. Your neighbor is anyone next to you, where you live, and how you live. So that means your literal neighbors, first of all, right? Like, you guys know those? Won't you be my neighbor, right? Like, your literal neighbors, all right? We got to be careful. We do this, right? We're like, well, I mean, some of us have lived in the same place for, like, decades. And we literally don't know our literal neighbors, right? And we're like, no, no, but, like, Jesus was metaphorical when he was like, love your neighbor. So, like, I metaphorically love, like, my metaphorical neighbors, And if you do that, what happens is you end up loving metaphorically and doing literally nothing, right? So you got to be careful not to just gloss, what's the spiritual meaning of this, you know, and get all like, hmm. It's like, no, no, your literal neighbors, anyone that's actually next to you. Are you, I mean, that grumpy one, right, that you really don't don't get along with. It's like, what what efforts are we making to actually demonstrate the the hope and and love and and grace of God to them In, in little ways? doesn't take much, but it takes intentionality, right? Okay, so that's number one. And secondly, your neighbor is also anyone next to you everywhere else. Everywhere you are. Anyone you cross paths with, they're your neighbor. In every context of life, work, school, um, traveling, your commute, like whatever it is, those are your neighbors too because they are next to you where you are. So I know it's like not to make it complicated, to simplify it really is your neighbor is everyone you come into contact with. And so this isn't a principle to go and apply. This is a posture to live out. Amen? It's a posture of how do I not put my self-interest first, but actually live with a mindset of how do I love those who are next to me wherever I am? That's, That's tough. It's very, very challenging. Okay, so this is not like, Jesus isn't like, this is really easy, go and do it. This is really tough. This is a really challenging thing. And here's why it's even more challenging for us. Okay, we're not an urban church, we are a suburban church. It is tough in the burbs to even understand the needs of our neighbors. Why? Because the burbs are engineered and designed to actually keep us from noticing needs. Whether they're relational needs, emotional or mental needs, or material, economic needs. That's what the burbs are for. You move to the burbs because you're okay. Because you've made it. That's why you move to the burbs, because you have the freedom to do so, and you have the economic, you have the economic freedom to do so. And so we have fences, and we have green grass, and we have garages that we drive into, so we don't have to make eye contact with our neighbors, right? We don't have porches. Like, like the, the design of homes has actually changed in the burbs, where we've gotten rid of porches and build backyards. Because if I sit on my porch, I actually have to make eye contact with weird strangers and go and talk to them and be like, good day, sir, right? But if in my backyard, all I got to do is look at squirrels. Because squirrels were the original population of the burbs, right? Praise God. But this is very, very challenging in suburban contexts. Because suburban contexts are to shield us from socioeconomic needs. But here, this is what's important. Suburbs are the fastest growing living centers in North America. So if we don't start to give some thought to how we actually love our burbs and love our community and love our neighbors, we're going to miss the opportunity to do so. You with me on that? 
Okay, so we have to start thinking differently about that. Because it's easy to live in an urban context because needs are everywhere. You see them all the time. You leave your house and all of a sudden you're met with some kind of a material need that you see, you're exposed to. Your commute to work, your commute to school, whatever it is. But in the burbs, that's not the case because they're hidden. They're behind houses, right? They're behind fences. They're behind garage doors. So we do have to be a bit more intentional. Uh, Ross Lester, a friend and pastor in Acts 29, down in the States, he said this. It'll be up here for you. Speaking of ministry and life as the church in, in the suburbs, he said, Our schools are good because there is inequitable spending on schools in other areas. Our neighborhoods are safe for us because they aren't safe for people who don't look like us. Our products are cheap and varied because people down the supply chain have been squeezed to below livable wages to get them to us. Our suburban life of comfort comes at a great cost to others. I think he's right. We don't know that because we're not exposed to it. It's not brought and kind of put in front of us on a daily basis. So we actually have to work to open our eyes to these needs. So it's a challenge. It's a unique challenge in the suburbs to fight for genuine community, church, in spaces that are built for self-contained nuclear families. Right? Like if you already have it, like, I mean, you've got your thing. It's like, well, you don't really need community, like especially a genuine one where I can just like be myself, be open, be safe, whatever it is. We have to fight for genuine community in spaces that are built for self-contained nuclear communities. We have to fight for mission in spaces that are defined by busyness and errands and commutes and soccer games and school drop-offs and way too much grocery shopping. So many, so much grocery shopping, right? But we actually have to fight for mission in the midst of a culture that is defined by productivity and busyness. It also means that we have to fight for radical generosity in a context that is built to mask real need. It's built to mask relational, mental, emotional, and economic need for the sake of our own comfort and convenience. So the suburbs are beautiful and awesome, and there's so many things that are a gift about the suburbs, but let, let us not be so naive to think that there is not a shadow side and a challenge to what it looks like to live out obedience and follow Jesus in suburban communities, okay? That's just a sidebar. Here's what Jesus continues on to do. So he takes this conversation that he has with the scribe. And what he does is he's going to go into two other little explanations, sidebar explanations. And he's going to take the positive command of love God, love neighbor. And now he's going to show us two ways not to do that. Okay, so he's like, love God, and now he's going to show us a way, like, don't, don't do it like this, right? And then he's like, and love neighbor, and he's going to show us a way not to do it, all right? So ready? Verse 38 through 40. So he also said in his teaching, beware of the scribes. Who's he talking to? Right? He's, he's talking to a scribe. I love it. Like, like, the scribe is like, Jesus, like, tell me about this. And he's like, I'm really cautious about people like you, Right? So he's like, beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and they want greetings in the marketplace, the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at all of the conferences and banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. 
Okay, so let me tell you my process really quickly. What Jesus is doing, and he's like, this is not what love of God looks like. Why? Because they love themselves. Okay? I am a teacher of the law. <laughs> I'm a scribe. Okay? So like sitting with this text, I'm just like, oh boy. Right? How much do I like to like go and just be like, oh, honor me. Look at, my, look at my boots today. Look how nice they are. Right? Like, like look at, let me sit in the front because I'm, I'm, I'm a teacher of the law. Right? Like so much of this creeps in. Honestly, it does. And Jesus is calling it out to say like, listen, you don't understand this. You've lost the plot, baby. You've lost what this is actually about if you think that it's, it's pomp and circumstance and conferences and books and people listening to your sermons and thinking you're so awesome. That's what he's calling out. So trust me, I was convicted all week by this before you are, okay? But here's what's happening with these people. They're going out and they're power dressing in the synagogue, for goodness sake, right? Celebrities power dress because they love themselves, amen? But like these are teachers of the law. These should be those who are actually after the least of, uh, the least of these, but they're making the most of themselves. They're going and they're power dressing. They're getting the best seats in the synagogue, which in that context meant the front because it was closer to the Torah. Okay, it makes sense? Because again, like we have these now, but in, in the first century, like you only had one of these and it was red. Like the word of God was red. Like you didn't get to go home and like put this in your pocket, right? The word of God was red. So if the closer you were to the rabbi, the closer you were to the law, to the Torah, at the front of the room was the more honorable they get the VIP seats, right? And then they get up and they make all these wordy prayers and they post wordy blogs and they tweet really wordy, amazing things that wax eloquent. And Jesus says, they're going to be punished worse. Okay. Why? Because they devour widows' houses. So what's happening here? Well, these are the cats that model the opposite of loving God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving neighbor because they're too busy loving themselves with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and ignoring their neighbor. And biblically, it's the definition of a hypocrite. That's what a hypocrite is. I know we throw hypocrite around for like somebody who like made a mistake. It's like, see, a Christian who makes a mistake, hypocrite. That's not hypocrisy. That's called trying to be a Christian. These guys have built their entire life on devouring the marginalized for the sake of their own selfish gain. And why does it mention widows here? Well, I think there's a literal thing happening here in that context, but I think there's a bigger principle as well. Well, widows in that context were the most vulnerable and helpless of the society because their status as a citizen and their socioeconomic well-being was tied to their husband and to their husband's name and usually to a dowry when they got married. That's usually where their kind of well-being came from. And often it was the scribes and lawyers that would actually exploit widows because they would charge them for legal advice on how to handle the husband's affairs, and they would rob them. They'd rob them of their dowries, they'd rob them of their property, and then they'd charge them crazy amounts of legal fees that they knew they couldn't pay. So Jesus is calling out a very real thing, but he's also kind of blowing it up to make it a more important principle here. Jesus is exposing systemic oppression and policies and doing, and and, and by doing that, in that community, he's rebuking the individuals who are profiting from them. Something that we could really use a revisit of today, amen? My favorite verse on this, we won't stop there. My favorite verse on this is is James 1.27. And it says this, should be up here for you. 
Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, obeying all 613 commandments perfectly. No. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the ways of the world. To visit the marginalized in their affliction, in their distress. Not sit far away and just write checks to them in their distress but actually visiting them. Now that word visiting is really important because it means take responsibility for needs that you didn't cause. Just because something isn't your fault doesn't mean it's not your responsibility. That is the biblical command here. That there's needy and marginalized and oppressed people that we actually are called to make our responsibility because we're products of the amazing Grace and generosity of God, and we deserve none of it. That's what's happening here. So visiting orphans and widows, the most helpless, those who are not able to make ends meet, caring for them, anyone with less of anything, not just money, but I mean like, yes, money less, parent less, family less, friend less, voice less, opportunity less, anyone with less, the church is called to actually prioritize them. And invite them into the upside down kingdom of God. That's what's happening here. It's amazing. It's convicting. But it's encouraging. Like this is empowering. To actually be able to reckon with how much we've been given. And then we get to go. We get to go and actually meet these needs. We get to go and visit those in their affliction and in their distress. Psalm 68.5 is another great example that God is a father to the fatherless. A defender of widows. Like you could say lots of things about God, but right there, he's a father to the fatherless. He's after those who are told you do not belong. And he's, he's the one who actually fights for the widow. That's our God. Religion doesn't do that. Politics doesn't do that. Human beings left to their own devices do not do this. But the God of heaven does. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. What he's calling out is this so-called public worship and obedience. Look how, look what, look at me. Look how obedient I am. Look how righteous I am. What he is saying is all of that public stuff means nothing if it doesn't lead us to care for the needy, the marginalized, and the voiceless. Period. Now that should be convicting. Like this means nothing. Nothing. If it is not showing up in our everyday life. If this isn't the fuel that lights us on fire to walk out of those double doors and go and live like this because of the radical generosity of our good father, we've missed the plot. Amen? That's what Jesus is doing. If you don't believe me, watch Isaiah 1. It'll be up here. Verse 11. What are all your sacrifices to me? Ask the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires this from you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. Your new moons and your Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. 
I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They have become a burden to me. I am tired of putting up with them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Cleanse yourselves. Remove your evil deeds from my sight and stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Sit for a second and just reflect on that. Like mid-sermon, okay? Like we're going to do a mid-sermon reflection. But, but take that in. We need more churches full of people that understand that. Because we can make so much of pomp and circumstance and make it about this 90-minute thing on a Sunday and be doing nothing of earthly or kingdom good. And we will answer for that. We will answer for it individually, yes. But we will answer for it corporately too. And I think that's why it's so convicting that Jesus is saying this to the scribes. Like he's saying it to the teachers of the law. But then he's also calling us to respond individually and personally. And here's what we have to fight the urge to do with texts like this that are, that are hard. These are heavy. Here's what we have to fight the urge to do. You have to fight the urge to hide behind like political and economic policies and talking points. I don't agree with social assistance because people need to better themselves like I have. They need to pull up their bootstraps and take personal responsibility. You know what the Bible does? It shows up and it says, what's your personal responsibility to care for the vulnerable and the marginalized? Like sometimes the word of God says stuff, but a lot of times it asks stuff. And you're like, mm, oh, I have to sit with that question. The Bible does not teach that your success or failure in life is solely due to individual choices and personal responsibility. It doesn't. It teaches that we are both personally responsible for our sinful choices and circumstances, but also corporately responsible to care for others. Clearly. Like that is just the, the message of the Bible. Take one thing. Just take one thing as you know, poverty. If you go through poverty and how Scripture speaks of the poor and, and the impoverished, sometimes it's because of choices that, that somebody has made. But most of the time it's not. And there's times where the disciples will come and be like, hey, so why is this beggar, like, begging? Why is he poor? Was it, like, his sin? Was it karma? Was it, like, the sins of his father? Was it, and he's like, and Jesus is like, neither. None of the above. <laughs> right? He just refuses to play that game. But with poverty throughout Scripture, sometimes it's choices. But often it's circumstances. Often it's birth. Sometimes it's a context or an environment. Sometimes it's a disaster. It's just a famine or a plague. And often it's an unjust, unjust economic or social system that has put somebody in that position. So we have to be far more thoughtful and far more obedient. But we can't be obedient to something if we're not thoughtful about it first. And I think that, that, that's what this text does for us. So the Bible is crystal clear, and Jesus is highlighting it right here. 
Just because you don't think something is your fault doesn't mean it isn't your responsibility. Self-preservation and prioritizing only you and your cute little thing and living for your well-being and then distancing yourself from the vulnerable is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like full stop. So, So look right at me, look right at me. When we ignore the poor, it's because we haven't rightly understood our poverty. When we overlook the marginalized, it's because we have forgotten our own marginalization and alienation from the God of heaven. When we fail to care for orphans and widows, it's because we have forgotten that we are orphans who need to be saved and brought home. It's a heart issue. It's not a policy issue. It's not a political issue. It's not politicians' jobs to go and do what the kingdom of heaven should be doing. So Jesus hits that, and then, we got to keep going, the kids are going to start throwing things. Okay, then he goes into another negative example. So this is an example, he's like, here's the poster boy of what not loving God looks like. And he like just paints that picture for us. Now he goes into a next, a next example, and he says, and here's what it looks like to fail for a loving neighbor. Okay, verse 41 through 44, watch. Sitting across from the temple treasury... He watched how the crowd dropped their money into the treasury. So pause for a second. Uh, Jesus is people watching. Anybody love people watching? It's the best, right? Spring, like when spring is in the air, I'm just like, which bench can I sit on and watch people now? you right? Like, that's it. So Jesus is people watching in the temple. I love it, okay? And many rich people were putting in large sums. They're coming in and flexing. And they're like, watch this. Then a poor widow came. Notice the redundancy. Widows are already poor. Jesus makes it very clear. This is actually a poor widow. And dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. He takes this opportunity, calls his disciples to him, and he's like, watch this. Disciples, come here, guys. And he said to them, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others before her. For they gave out of their surplus, but she gave out of her poverty. And has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. Now this is radical for so many reasons. You got to understand the treasury though. So in the temple at that time, in the, in the court of the temple, usually in the Gentile court or in the women's court, there were 13 different like treasuries for different types of offering. And they were shaped like a shofar. Who knows what a shofar is? Yeah, nerds. Okay. Like trumpet. Right? Okay, so it was shaped like a shofar, and you could come and drop your coins in. Now, they're not dropping debit cards or bills, right? They're dropping metal money in there. And so all the rich, you could hear how much they gave. And they were probably slam dunking it to make sure you heard it, right? Like they were coming up to the temple trust, and they're like, boom, what's up? Right, and then walking away. And then the widow comes and drops two pennies. And it's like, tink, tink. And then Jesus uses this object lesson to be like, come here. Come here, let me teach you something. That's what's happening. That's the scene, okay? And the poor widow comes and gives two lepta is what what it was. It was like, I mean, pennies don't exist for us anymore, right? So just like those, okay? Two of those. It was 164th, I think, if I remember. Don't quote me because every time I say a number, it's wrong, all right? And then you text me. You're like, your math was off this Sunday. I'm like, I barely barely got through grade 11. Leave me alone. But I think it was 164th of a day's wage. 
So take what you make every day and divide it into whatever math thing that is. Okay? See, I told you I'm not good at it. But she comes along and drops two pennies while other guys are coming in and dropping tons. And Jesus holds her up as an example of generosity and trusting God. Holds her up. He makes much of her. Says that she's the model example of radical generosity. But not just that. That she's the model example of radical trust in God. That's the bigger point here. And I love this about Jesus. Because he is always elevating and honoring those who don't think they have any honor. He's always elevating those who don't think they have any reason to flex. And he's always discrediting those who think that they are already something. If you don't think you have a need for God, you will not have God. If you already think that you are something, that is not something you'll even see as a need. So Jesus is always highlighting these, these people, the the humble, the down and out, the marginalized, those who have just been squashed by suffering and circumstance and trials. God loves to use people who don't make much of themselves. Amen? Like this room is full of us. Like we are them. Most of us, like our stories, we're just like, that's not impressive at all. But you know why we get people to share stories from the front so often? Because the thing that you don't see as significant is the way that God flexes through our humility of like, I don't really have a story until you start telling it. I get up here and sweat and yell week in and week out. And guess what people remember by Wednesday? The testimonies. It bothers me a lot. I'll get calls in the middle of the week and be like, this weekend was so encouraging. And I'm just like, hmm, yeah, why so? Tell me. They're like, oh man, Pam's story. I'm like, what? What about this part? You know? <laughs> but there's something to that because it starts to give God, like it starts to give the gospel legs. It starts to show us that God is actually saving and rescuing and empowering normal people who don't think we have anything to offer. And he's the one that empowers and fills them out and, it, and they go out and turn their cities upside down. That's what he's doing here. So Jesus goes, hey, this widow, she embodies the kingdom of God. Not all these clowns. That's convicting. That's pretty wild. He says, actually, the widow gives more than the rest of them because she gave out of her poverty, not out of her wealth. The Greek word there is bios, which is life. Like she literally gives her life there. Meaning she doesn't give leftovers of what she has. She gives all that she has. And so catch it, it's not just about the money. It's that her heart posture before God is that she knows where everything comes from so she is able to give him back everything and trust him with the results. That's why Jesus highlights her here. So don't miss it. The scribes actually give more than she does, but in the kingdom of God it means less. That's pretty cool. That's pretty humbling. That's good for us who don't have very much. Those of us who are maybe in seasons of, of want, of, of not having abundance. Other, others of us that have abundance, it's also convicting. Because it's like, have I just been kind of giving out of like leftovers? Or have I actually been prioritizing, understanding that all of this is from God, right? This radical generosity that he highlights in the widow is the byproduct of her radical, generosity, uh, her radical trust in God. So if you struggle with generosity, the principle here, if you do struggle with generosity... Many of us do. This is tough, especially in the burbs. 
The verbs do not celebrate generosity. But if you, if you struggle with generosity, it's because somewhere you actually struggle to trust God. It's much deeper than just about the dollars. The cents and dollars. It's more than that. It's control. It's, it's trust. It's an entitlement. It's, it's a lack of humility. And this is why Jesus does talk about wealth so much. And we won't do that now, but this is why Jesus does talk. One out of four sermons is about wealth. It's about money, about what we do. Why? Well, because what we do with what we have shows what we live for. And that's Jesus' point here. That the poor widow is, is the example of radical trust and total abandonment to God. So Jesus is warning his disciples not to be like the pastors and the teachers and the conference speakers of his day and to be more like this poor widow. Jesus is calling for people who will give him everything that they have. St. Augustine famously said, Christ is not valued at all until he is valued over all. And I think that's this principle right here. That's this principle writ large for us. So where does that leave us? Here's how we can apply it. Well, some of us haven't trusted God to rearrange our lives fully, and that's why he hasn't yet. And so there's a heart issue there. The text is very uncomfortable for us because we have to sit with that. It's, a, it's especially uncomfortable for me as a teacher of the law. But as we respond, we have to take some time to think and, and pray, but not just think and pray and reflect and kind of do like the Christian thing of like, I prayed, I've reflected, but act. Actually do something. Actually respond with our lives. So let me ask a few questions, and then we'll reflect and sing and pray. Do you identify more with the scribes or the poor widow? Are you more like the scribe in your posture and in your priorities or more like the poor widow in this season of your life? Who stood out to you? and Where did you kind of see yourself in this, in this challenge, in this encouragement? Secondly, what are your two pennies? What has God entrusted to you? Maybe it's more than two. Maybe it's a lot more than two. <laughs> but what has God actually entrusted to you? Yes, money, but, but education, gifts and talents and Leadership or time. Some of you guys have just, a, I don't know where, how you have so much time. It's amazing. It's a gift. I wish I had more, right? But time to serve. Are you? Are you serving? Are you prioritizing? Others, community, all sorts of stuff. Your job. How do you steward your job, your, your career, your vocation? God has given you. Your relationships. Just take stock of your current relationships that you have. Are those part of your two pennies? And how can you use them? How can we steward those? How can you specifically steward and manage those things for the benefit, benefit of others? That's a good question. For the benefit of others, not for yourself. Not for propping up yourself and just getting more square footage and better kitchens and, and better neighborhoods, but actually for the betterment of others' well-being. At your cost and their gain. What does that look like? And who are the strangers, the orphans, and the widows that God has put in your path? Who are they? I know it's harder. It's harder to actually see sometimes, locally. Globally, it's easier. Because there's lots of things. Lots of things that we can be giving to and, and praying into. But who are the orphans and widows that God has placed in your path that, that God is calling you to do something about? 
And last, how can, you, how can you be more intentional and actually create margin in your life? Be more proactive about this and practice generosity. Who are you already in proximity with that have like very real emotional needs, very real relational needs, very real socioeconomic needs, whatever those needs are, but we have needy people in our lives. You know what the beautiful thing about this is? The second that we actually start to prioritize the well-being of others, guess what happens? We're the priority of somebody else's. And that's exactly how backwards and upside down this principle is in the kingdom of God. That it's like, hey, you know how the world will, will know that I love you and that you actually know me? It's how you take care of each other. But it's beautiful because if we start to actually prioritize the needs of others, guess what? We step up and start to care for one another well. And we actually do it better when we do that. That's what's amazing about this principle. That our priorities would actually be other-centered. And God promises to come in and care for our needs. So what can we do? I know these are hard because sometimes we leave here guilty or just feeling like, what? but I can't do all of that. Right? It's like, no, no, no. Don't, don't think about what we can't do. Because there will always be needs. Always. What can we do? What can you do? What can we corporately as a church do? What can you do as a city group in your community? What can you do individually with what God has entrusted to you? I know that um, you know, fostering and adoption is a big part of our heart as a church. Many of us live in that world. But there are still 48,000 orphans in Canada alone. There's one Quebec agency, foster agency, that went from 900 foster parents to 300 in the last five years. And there are needs right here. Tons of them. There's hidden poverty in our own suburbs. There's, there's international care that is desperately needed. Refugees, orphans, all sorts of needs. One of our partners shelter them with the orphans that they house and take care of in, in Rwanda. We have so many ways that we can be giving. And I know these last two years, it's like, I've just tried to survive. It's like, amen, I get you. But God willing, as we move into more freedom and are able to actually reevaluate what we've been entrusted with, this is the question that we have to sit with. This is the question that we get to. So I'll leave you with this. Then we'll reflect, we'll sing, and we'll send you out of here. But in Acts 17, I won't go there. In Acts 17, there's this really interesting verse. It says that God has determined seasons and boundaries of where you are, where you are, and when you are. <laughs> and you're like, oh, that's kind of strange. Like, I just, like, don't like where I am or when I am, right? Like, like, I just can't wait to get through this season of my life. And Acts 17 shows up and he's like, no, no, don't, don't do that. Don't move to the next season yet because God has you exactly where he wants you for a time like this. All it takes is for us to open our eyes to lift our head up and to actually pay attention to the evidence of grace and the needs that are there, where we are for this season. It doesn't matter if you're gonna be there forever or not. It doesn't matter if things are gonna change in the next several months or several years. The point is, in this text, it's that we have to trust presently. We have to be present and obedient in the season that God has us, amen? That's what that text pushes on us. So you aren't who you are or where you are for no reason. God has you there to do exactly what he's called you to. Right now, for this season, this one. Don't think about the next one. Tomorrow we'll have things to worry about and so will the next season, but you have today. You have where you are right now. You have the opportunities you have right now. Through history and throughout the New Testament, the church, when healthy 
and not distracted by nonsense. Not that we do that, right? Amen? No? Okay. But when healthy and not distracted by nonsense, the church has been marked by radical generosity. And there's a really interesting reputation that the church has in Acts chapter 4. It says that there was not a what? A needy person among them. That's pretty wild. To understand that God gives us all that we have so that others can get all that they need. That is the kingdom of God. Let me pray for us to this end as we reflect and sing and respond. Father, some of us uh, have not yet come to trust you. There's lots of reasons for that and lots of challenges. I pray that today would be a new day where we come to have fresh eyes and open ears to just the good news that, that we don't need to work for this, but that we work from it, that you already call us daughters and sons and that we are already accepted and loved and forgiven and protected and that we're safe with you. So I pray that we would, with reckless abandonment, trust you, throw our whole life at you because it comes from you in the first place. And I pray that you would make much of yourself as we do that. And I pray for all of us who have been following you and, and, and just running after you with our lives, whether it's for months or for, for years or for decades, I pray that this would be a fresh, a fresh encounter and that we would be, in, we'd be challenged and encouraged and propelled outwards that you would open our eyes to needs, that we would be about the right things, that our energy and our time and our finances and our relationships would be about the right things, things that matter to you. And we would take responsibility for that and corporately that we as a church would be defined by it. There's so many things we could be defined by. I just pray that we would be defined by radical trust in you and a radical generosity that flows out of that. So we ask that you would just convict, challenge, encourage us, that you would speak, that spirit would be open to what it is that you want us to hear out of this this morning, and that it would make much of the name of your son, Jesus Christ. We need you, we love you, and ask all these things in your name. Amen.